And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, September 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what do congressional minions actually do when they try to reconcile bills anyhow? Plus, quantum computing is hot these days. The problem is it's cold. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a federal court ruling has the Small Business Administration rethinking what it takes to join its disadvantaged business programs. SBA automatically considered small businesses to be socially disadvantaged and eligible for its 8A program if the owner identified as a racial or ethnic minority. But a federal judge is setting a higher bar for small companies to prove their disadvantaged status. We get the latest from Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And just review for us for a moment, Jory, what led to these changes, the lawsuit. Right. Yeah, it's quite a journey of how we got here. This is the result of a ruling from the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Tennessee in a lawsuit where SB actually was not even a party in it. It was against the Agriculture Department, a women-owned small business called Ultima Services Corporation. They brought the suit against USDA when it placed Ultima's previous contract, which it was up to uh, re, uh, renew into the 8A program, which is set aside for small disadvantaged businesses of some social or economic variable. And so Ultima sued saying this was race-based discrimination and that the contractor here was not able to recompete for this contract because it wasn't 8A. And so as a result, we got this ruling from this district court judge. He had pointed to some other recent rulings over at the Supreme Court where there were some changes in affirmative action in colleges' missions. And he said that in government programs, there has to be a logical endpoint for racially conscious government programs. Right. And this was kind of expected that that Supreme Court ruling might cascade down to various areas of business. And so the SBA suspended 8A for a while, and now it is reacting in a more positive way. What are they doing right now? Right. So specifically what SBA is doing is they are now requiring firms to submit a narrative statement in addition to everything else that they're providing for the program, uh, explaining their social disadvantage or their economic disadvantage to outline specific examples of how they were you know, denied opportunities that other small firms that are not of a racial minority might experience. One thing to point out here, Alaska Native corporations, Native Hawaiian organizations, and Indian tribes that own small businesses, they are exempt from that narrative at this point in the machinations of this ruling. I spoke with Rob Wong. He's a former SBA executive. He now advises 8A firms on how to navigate the ins and outs of government contracting. He talks a little bit about what these changes and these new requirements means for small businesses. It's not hard, but it's arduous. It's not hard, but it, it, it can be emotional. But at the end of the day, this is the evolution of the law. They didn't take the program away. I think that personally, I think that there's still a need, compelling government need to have diversity in government contracting. And there's this compelling need to have small business government contracting. All right. And so what does this all mean for people that might want to join the program now in anticipation of maybe doing business in the coming fiscal year? Right. So for the time being, SBA has continued to put a temporary pause on new applicants to the 8A Disadvantaged Business Program. 
this is something that we're watching. And of course, this evolves uh, as SBA gets more familiar with its remedy to this court ruling. But for now, there, that pause remains in place. And they've got to make these changes such that the narrative can be incorporated into the process. What else does SBA have to do, I guess, to its own internal operations and so forth to implement the changes it's planning? Right. Well, this is a challenging time for this ruling to go in effect and for SBA to honor that ruling because this is a time where we're in the final days and weeks of the fiscal 2023 year. This is when a lot of spending is happening in that final lead up to fiscal 2024. A lot of these dollars have been obligated but not yet sent out the door. And I spoke with Wong who said that he's been hearing from clients who have submitted these narratives to SBA and they've gotten notes back. They've gotten clarifying questions. This is not just a check the box exercise. This is something that SBA is going over with a fine-tooth comb. And so here's what Wong has said based on what he's heard back from his clients. SBA would be well in their right to give you one opportunity only. And if you didn't carry the day, you're going to lose that opportunity. And as I said before, for a lot of small businesses, you know, they've worked all year long to get these contracts awarded at the end of the fiscal year. And that's what's at risk. Yeah. So this fiscal year looks like sort of an unraveling of this. And then we have to hope that SBA gets this straightened out in 2024, fiscal 2024, which doesn't give them much time either. No matter how you look at it, there's not a whole lot of runway here. One thing to look at longer term, we saw that the Biden administration a couple of years ago actually set a higher goal for more of these federal contracting dollars to go to 8A firms. They are looking for the total federal spend to go from 10% to 15% by 2025. It's unclear whether these new requirements for 8A businesses will uh, result in fewer firms getting that approval each year, or even if it results in agencies being able to meet that 15% goal in 2025. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, quantum computing is hot these days. The problem is it's cold. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Quantum computing, the next big thing or forever in the future? The answer lies in whether there's a practical way to make the crucial components for quantum computers. Now they require expensive, bulky, and energy-intensive supercooling, like to nearly absolute zero. Well, now a Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency program seeks a breakthrough in quantum computing science so it can get at warmer temperatures. We get the particulars from DARPA program manager Mukund Vengalator. Dr. Vengalator, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And manufacturability, that's the essential issue, right, for building quantum computers, because what they do is fairly well understood. Would that be a fair way to characterize the situation? That would be a fair way. So I, I would use the word scalability rather than manufacturability. So the, 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 uh, what you said was absolutely right, that at the heart of quantum computers are what we call qubits. These are the quantum versions of classical bits, and we understand fairly well how they work. And there are many versions of such qubits, whether it be with superconducting devices, whether it be with cold atoms, with ions, or even with photons. In this program, we are looking particularly at what can be done to advance the state of the art in the particular context of superconducting qubits. And there, as you said, the huge challenge right now is scalability. 
how do we go from one or two qubits or even a few dozen qubits to the number of qubits that we actually need for quantum computers to become viable or practical? And qubits operate mechanically, correct? I mean, it's a very tiny thing that's either here or there, and therefore it has two states. Is that fundamentally what's going on? That's the key distinction between a classical bit, which can either be one of two states, up or down or zero or one, and a quantum bit, which can be in a superposition of both zero and one at the same time. And so while that might not seem like a uh, dramatic distinction when you're just dealing with one bit or one qubit, the essence of being able to put these qubits in superpositions of many different states at the same time has the rather dramatic benefit as you scale up to the fact that there's an exponential growth of quantum resources or the available information processing capacity. So each additional qubit that you add to your processor doubles the processing power of your quantum computer. And that has always been the lure of why this would be a transformative new way of computation. Now, there are companies that have quantum computers, and they admit it. there's only a couple of dozen or maybe a couple of hundred qubits on them. It's almost like I remember there was a toy computer when I was a kid that was mechanical, and it had three places. You could have 001, 010, or 011 or something on it with sliding pieces of metal back and forth. Kind of that's where they are now. Are these then, such as they are, also supercooled with all the resources that takes? In the context of superconducting qubits or the superconducting quantum computing uh, platforms, that is definitely true. They, they need These need to be operated at temperatures on the order of tens of millikelvin. So that takes a huge amount of infrastructure in terms of how we actually uh, cool these superconducting qubits down. They need dilution fridges, many layers of shielding, and these are extremely bulky devices. And so scaling up from, say, like you said, dozens of qubits to the tens of thousands or the hundreds of thousands of qubits that one would actually need to tackle the really hard problems is a uh, enormous challenge right now. We're speaking with Dr. Makund Vengalator. He is a program manager in the Defense Science Office at DARPA. So tell us about the project, the challenge, the grants that you have going here for, let's call it hot computing, hot quantum computing, fair to say, hot meaning somewhere above absolute zero. That's right. That's a very important point or clarification that needs to be said. When we say hot qubits or warm temperature superconductors, we're not talking about room temperature. We're talking about temperatures on the order of a few Kelvin. That's icy, icy cold in normal circumstances, but it's still warm compared to the current temperatures of such qubits, which are 10 to 20 millikelvin. But it's a quantum, pardon the pun, difference in scalability and ability to have something that's it's a, it's a huge difference. It will make a huge difference in how scalable these quantum processors can become if we can make the seemingly marginal increase from, say, tens of millikelvin to a few kelvin. All right. And how are you going about this from a program standpoint? Are you giving grants to institutions to try to develop the science or what's going on in the program itself? So at a fundamental level, the question we are asking, and that, that also gets to the heart of the name of the program, synthetic quantum nanostructures. So why synthetic and why nanostructures? And the question we are asking builds upon various insights, including those that have been developed in the past by DARPA. So if I say, what is a nanostructure or what is a metamaterial? These are materials that do not exist in nature. But we know, for instance, in a very classical context, 
For instance, if I were to say ultralight materials, and the picture one has in mind is of these meshes or these foams, foam-like structures, and these do not exist in nature, but these are artificially designed or functionally engineered for specific purposes. So in the context of ultralight materials, the questions one would ask is, I want a material that's extremely strong, and I also want a material that's extremely light. If one were to just go around and look in nature for such materials, one can either find strong materials, which are heavy, or light materials that are fragile. And so it takes kind of a uh, stroke of genius to say, I can indeed combine these seemingly contradictory attributes by functionally engineering synthetic structures. And similarly, we also know of materials, artificial materials or synthetic nanostructures that can modify the flow of sound, that can reflect sound in some wavelengths and not in others. We can do the same thing with light, that we can modify the flow of light. We can cause some colors to be reflected, some colors to be transmitted. The question we are asking in this program is, can we engineer such functional quantum materials that can exhibit the kinds of properties that we need of superconducting electronics. And here I'm not just restricting attention of this program to quantum uh, or qubits or quantum processors. There are a huge variety of applications that we can uh, harness with such synthetic superconductors. And we're asking the question, can we take existing materials or, and functionally engineer them to combine seemingly contradictory properties? For instance, extremely robust quantum behavior and higher temperature operation. And if we can do that, not only do we enable a much larger range of scalability for quantum processors or superconducting qubits, we get to build sensors or quantum sensors that are far more sensitive to very weak levels of light. We can process signals at much higher speeds, not gigahertz, but hundreds of gigahertz or even terahertz and we can start processing these signals at quantum levels of sensitivity. So the aperture opens rather dramatically to what we can do with such superconducting devices once we can functionally engineer these materials. And how are you going about that discovery of whether these can be made? So we are building on some known insights or recent insights in the physics community that have shown that the current state of nanofabrication and functional engineering is at such a high level of sophistication that we can actually envision being able to engineer materials at the nanoscale in a certain sense, functionally build up materials from almost at the atom by atom level by combining different materials, different attributes, and harnessing our known knowledge of superconductivity, of knowing how superconductivity works at heart in a class of materials to say, can we push up the temperatures and the functional capabilities of materials or devices that harness or that requires such uh, superconducting properties. Well, my question is, who are you asking? Is this going out to academic institutions, laboratories, and so forth in the form of grants, and they will try to compete for getting to that answer? That's exactly right. So this is at such a foundational level where we are saying, we just are posing the question, what if we could functionally engineer new kinds of superconductors? How would we do it? And what are all the applications that would be engendered by these innovations? And we're asking academia, we're asking government laboratories, and we're asking industry all to come together to, uh, to either work together or to pitch their ideas of how they would functionally engineer such superconductors. And the twist of uh, in this program that is very important to note is that we are not just asking these performers or these proposers to develop new materials. We're also asking them to 
incorporate these materials into actual devices, whether they be qubits, whether they be photon detectors, whether they be amplifiers, quantum amplifiers, and show us that your innovations and your functionally engineered materials do lead to dramatic improvements in these devices. I guess my question is, given the DARPA context, because ultimately what you do is for defense superiority, how do you keep this knowledge, information, breakthrough out of the hands of, say, China? Because they're probably chasing after it also. We are working at such a fundamental scientific level, especially at the Defense Sciences Office, that, of course, down the road, there are going to be application-specific work that needs to be done that would be of a much higher classification and much more sensitive. But right now, we're treating this very much like a fundamental academic question. What if we can actually pull this off? And it's while there are obviously a number of applications that are defense-oriented, we could also envision the same devices being employed towards, you know, um, quantum computing for uh, applications like new kinds of materials discovery, new kinds of pharmaceutical discovery. We can envision these kinds of photon detectors being used for medical diagnosis. We can envision these kinds of devices being used for a wide range of applications that have both defense, medical, or even commercial applications. So at this point, we're saying, let's just plant some flags here in terms of foundational concepts. And once we know what is truly possible, we can then either go towards more sensitive applications, or we can open the horizon for more commercial applications or applications in the context of medicine, uh, materials engineering, materials discovery. There's a huge, huge range of applications. So at this point, we don't see the need to close the apertures or build walls right when we are at such a beginning or a nascent stage. And will you know this in three months or 10 years, or will you have any kind of a cogent timeline there, I would be speculating, but I'm reasonably confident that we will know at least what is possible and what would be truly disruptive or transformative within a few years. Well, yeah, so a long-term project then. Dr. Makund Vangalator is a program manager at the Defense Science Office at DARPA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, and thank you for your interest in this program. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, there they go again. Labor proposes overtime for salaried contract employees. But first, what do congressional minions actually do when they try to reconcile bills anyhow? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The detailed work of Congress is done not by members, but rather by the 30,000-odd staff members. And right now, a group of overworked and probably underpaid minions are what they call conferencing over one of the most important yearly laws, the National Defense Authorization Act. My next guest used to be one of those minions. Among other things, she was senior defense advisor to Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins. Now an attorney with Covington and Burling, Michelle Pierce joins me in studio. Ms. Pierce, good to have you with us. Great to be here. And we should say that you were also working in national security. You work for the Army Department. And so this is still part of your life's work, fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. In my prior position in the Department of Defense, I was the department's lead attorney for legislation. So in that capacity, even 
after having left the Hill, I continued to work on that program, which represents one of the largest programs in the federal government with literally hundreds of proposals that end up in the final bill each year at the request of the Department of Defense and, you know, obviously approved through OMB and, you know, by the president. But inevitably, a lot of those provisions in the bill actually stem from requests from the department itself. And before we get into some of the themes in the NDAA, which has yet to be worked out as we speak here, but what was it like? I mean, what really goes on in the meetings, and especially in the conferences, and especially in, in one of those years like now, where everybody seems to be worlds apart, and they don't like each other very much, one side and the other? Well, the committees themselves are really governed by a tradition that they hold dear, which is bipartisanship. And it's really, really important when you're a professional staff member on the committees to live by those principles, because at the end of the day, the NDAA is a must-pass bill. And one of the reasons why it gets enacted each year, you know, it's been more than 60 years at this point that we've had a defense bill pass. It's really kind of driven by the expectation from the members that the staff will do the work to get that bill done. And frankly, a lot of the staffers are longtime staffers, and they have relationships with one another, both on the House and the Senate side. Many of us, when I was on the committee, had worked together in the Department of Defense or in the Air Force. And so I think that at its most basic, the just guiding principle as staff are conferencing various provisions, even very potentially controversial provisions, that they're going to work together and they're going to try to find common ground when they can. And how does the work take place? Does everyone sit in a conference room with cigarettes being stubbed out and broken coffee cups with notebooks open and pens and pencils? I mean, well, on line 56 on page 3000, you say this. How about if we say where to for as to codicil 16 point B? What goes on? So the framework is really kind of constructed around a professional staff member's portfolio. So I was the staff lead for the readiness subcommittee. So every provision that fell into the readiness portfolio were the provisions that I would personally negotiate with my Senate counterparts. And so that's how the initial conversations are started. You have a portfolio, you have certain issues that you are familiar with and are working on behalf of the members, and you do, in fact, sit at a table with pen and pencil in hand, and you basically have a spreadsheet with all the provisions that you are responsible for. And the tradition, again, on the committee is, like I said, to find common ground, but it's also to really focus on the significant policy ramifications of each of the measures that you are negotiating. Right. At some level, there is a public purpose in all of this and not simply a negotiation over paragraphs, your guy, my guy type of thing. Correct. And frankly, my view was that because you have the House position and the Senate position on all of these different policy issues, it really is important to walk through each word, to discuss the ramifications of each word that we're either inserting or perhaps one issue might be to subtract or to you know strike a provision or a certain word in a potential you know law that could sure. be very deleterious to our national security posture. And I exaggerated. It's only 2,000 pages, the NDAA. And do you imagine right now they're working nights and weekends? 
yes, staff are committed right now to producing what will eventually be the NDAA for fiscal year 2024. And just to get back to how those specific provisions are negotiated, each chamber goes to the conference table and advocates for the enacted bill that was passed in each chamber. So even your own personal views on what the policy should be are really not at issue. It's the House passed a bill. The provisions in that bill are the provisions that, as staff, we advocated for, and we took you know, that charge very seriously because eventually we would report out to the members, you know, what the outcomes of these types of negotiations were. And also to kind of just put a pin in it, the staff negotiations are very cordial, even on very contentious issues. And it would not be surprising on any given day over the weekend for somebody to bring in food for the team, conducting the negotiations. Like I said, a lot of the teams are, you know, professional staff members who've been on the committees sure. for many years and have worked through very contentious bill cycles in the past. I'll get the bean soup, but I got to run down to the Senate now before they close the cafeteria type of thing. We're speaking with Michelle Pierce. She specializes in national security now as an attorney at Covington and Burling. And let's get into this year's bill. What are three or four do you think are the top themes now that worries Congress and somewhere buried in there worries the Defense Department. So China, China, and China. <laughs> you cannot underestimate the effect of the geopolitical landscape related to China. And it's not just that there are provisions prohibiting various activities, you know, procurements with China, supply chain, you know, security measures really focused on stemming a lot of malign activities undertaken by the Chinese government. But ultimately, you have to understand that that geopolitical landscape is pushing really a whole new line of provisions year after year. You see it particularly during covid Supply chain security, you know, that became a huge priority and you continue to see that. But it's really, you know, the situation with China, Taiwan, and it's oddly enough, you know, an area where there is significant bipartisan agreement as to the approach. And so you have legislators working together to try and fully understand what more we could be doing on a year to year basis to ensure, you know, that we are postured in a way that we are limiting our risks stemming from the situation with our relationship with China and their Right, and that strategic relationship then devolves into a lot of areas and say, for example, well, great, we've got 11 carriers and they only have three except a third of our fleet, you name the platform, is always in dry dock where we don't have enough space to fix them. Therefore, there's this 10-year backlog of ship repair And when you do repair a ship, a big one, it takes two years out of commission, et cetera, et cetera, which gets into the industrial base, the acquisition. So it does permeate pretty widely, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, I would add to your list workforce, a skilled workforce that can help our country basically onshore activities and the manufacturing pipelines that, to your point, ensure that we have a ship that is ready to be deployed at a moment's notice. But that, as having a skilled workforce has certainly been a concern. And you see a lot of focus also on 
skilled workforce development programs that the department is focused on to ensure that we have the skilled people who can actually put together (laughs) and craft not just a ship, but an airplane. And, you know, you think of all of our major acquisition platforms and programs, each one of those programs requires a very skilled workforce, and it takes a really long time, for example, to train and develop a welder skill, for example. Right, and that's the workforce both for DOD itself, the civilian and uniform workforce development, and the defense industrial base workforce, too, fair to say. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, everyone thinks airplanes, they look simple from the outside, but just open a panel on one of them and look inside and see how complicated this stuff really is. All right, so they'll get it done because they get it done by the end of the year, basically. Absolutely, and so just to kind of give you a little bit more perspective on how the conference process wraps up with respect to these negotiations. There inevitably are, at the end of these types of negotiations, a number of provisions that the staff just couldn't reach agreement on. So those provisions are tabled and actually briefed to the leaders on the committee, the staff directors in both the House and the Senate, and then also the leadership of the committee, so the chairs and the ranking members. And in those instances, again, it's very bipartisan, very collaborative. You have you know, members of Congress who've been working together for many, many years in various capacities and on various committees. They take the charge very seriously that you know, they are responsible for the security of the Department of Defense, the United States. They inevitably will try to find a compromise if there isn't a clear solution that is going to satisfy both parties and both chambers. You have given us some great insight. Michelle Pierce specializes in national security. She's an attorney at Covington and Burling and former Hill staff member and former defense civilian employee. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, there they go again. Labor proposes overtime for salaried contractor employees. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Labor Department has revived an old idea, salaried private sector employees who work overtime. Well, you can't just compensate them with pizza. A rule proposed last week would mandate overtime for people making up to $55,000 a year. The current ceiling is $35,000. Here with the federal contractor view of this proposed rule, the executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. And Stephanie, I'm guessing probably that you guys don't feel like this is the best rule ever proposed. Well, thanks, Tom, so much for having me. You know, we go back to the old adage, everything old is new again. This Department of Labor proposed rule on overtime protection really does harken back to an Obama-era attempt to do something similar. Back then, towards the end of President Obama's tenure, there was an attempt to double the ceiling for the amount by which the workers could be compensated. At that point, it was $23,000 a year was the threshold, and they were trying to make it into the 40s. This, as you mentioned, is about $20,000 additional to where it is today. $55,000 is the threshold, and contractors are worried about this. It's not that they are against overtime. That's not the point at all. Workers should be compensated for the work that they do in more than just pizza. That said, when 
contracts are negotiated between the federal government and the private sector, they are tied into specific labor rates. And PSC, as you know, tracks government services contractors. And the backbone of our industry is making sure that we have a highly skilled, knowledgeable, and dedicated workforce. So we do want to compensate them adequately, but we are tied to whatever is allowable in the contract for labor rates. This proposed rule doesn't contemplate what impact this will have on government contractors. So you can be sure that PSC will be commenting. Yes. I mean, it affects any private sector employer. It's common, right, for a contractor or a company to say, you know what, this software project, this integration project, we got to deliver this Wednesday under the contract, but we have work that'll take us till Thursday. All hands on, we're going to get this done no matter how long it takes. Now those people, a lot of them would be getting overtime if this goes through. That's exactly right. And when you're working on a fixed price contract, for example, you don't have a lot of leeway as a company to compensate the employees out of the existing pool of funds that was negotiated during the contract. And so you are taking it, therefore, out of overhead or you're taking it out of other elements of your business. Again, services contractors really do want to compensate their workers adequately. And again, in more than just pizza and beer. That said, you know, we'll be going back to the Department of Labor with some considerations for them about how this will impact government contractors. And at the end of the day, the capabilities that the government receives and what happens on that front. And even in cost plus contracts, the government could challenge costs. What's the old poster you used to see? Lack of planning on your part doesn't constitute an emergency on my part. Your overtime is your problem. You said you'd deliver it then. This is what your rates and the costs are that you quoted. They could challenge a company and say, well, these overtime costs are not allowable costs. That's exactly right. And I think at the end of the day, this has to be an iterative conversation between contracting officers and the contractors themselves to talk about what impact this particular overtime protections rule will have on contractors and the work that they perform. I do know that the government would like to see a robust industrial base to support the government missions that are performed. That said, there has to be a conversation about this particular rule, as there was years ago when this came up before. I will note that this rule was challenged in court and a federal judge did rule that the Department of Labor exceeded its authority. So we will be watching also the court system closely. Yeah, interesting. They were knocked down once, but they're back again. It's like, remember those toys we had as a kid, a clown punching weebles. bag? You'd punch <laughs> or weevils it. that wobble but don't fall down. <laughs> it right? would pop up again. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought I had the knockout blow there. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And then Oasis. Here we are at the midnight hour for Oasis, and now there are amendments to the RFP and no extension on modifying. What's going on? There are concerns within the government contract community about OASIS Plus. And that is to say, there were at least two amendments that have come out, one in early July and one in mid-August, that fundamentally would have changed some companies' approaches to their proposals. And more recently, GSA released answers to some questions that were posed, and those were released on August 29th, so just last week. The due date for proposals is September 13th, but some of the answers that GSA provided and some of the requirements in the new amendments really do change contractors' approaches, whether it's teaming arrangements, et cetera. One piece, and I'd like to talk more to the government counterparts about this, is that teaming arrangements do take weeks, if not months, to negotiate. 
And if you change the rules of the game this close to the end of the solicitation period, you might have to compromise on the due diligence. You know, you want to get a new partner on your proposal. You do need to scrub their financials. You need to scrub what they bring to the table, etc. Lawyers are involved, a lot of legal paperwork. And I just don't think with releasing Q&As this close to the due date, the GSA is doing anyone any favors in terms of having to renegotiate those agreements. Yes, the uh, answers and all of this were released on August 29th, the Q&A that you have to fill out. And then the proposal deadline is still September 13th for those that want to bid on Oasis, which has been delayed by protests for quite a while here. Well, there have been changes when the court system ruled on other vehicles. You know, they had to see how those rulings might apply to Oasis Plus. So this has been going on for quite a while in development. That said, PSE does take seriously some of the changes that have come down the pike recently and has asked GSA to consider extending the due date for one more month until October 13th, which is a Friday next month. You know, our members would love more time, but to keep it as close to on track as possible, we've asked for a 30-day extension. All right. In the meantime, the Senate is back in town. Next week, the House comes back to town. And here we go with the budget talks, and we know the ramifications of what's happening and what's not happening. But if there is a budget, it's assuming a rate of inflation that is way below reality, and that's got contractors concerned. You know, in the D.C.-based parlor game of what will Congress do in September, I'm not one to put any bets on the table. I would say one area that we are tracking very, very closely is we note that the president's budget, when it came across from the White House earlier this year, had a 2.4% inflation rate built in. Unfortunately, our country still hasn't recovered from the higher than expected inflation of last year. It did trickle over into this year. And if you just look at, you know, we look at various indices, but one that we take very seriously is the personal consumption expenditure and the six-month trimmed PCE price index. That comes out of the Department of Commerce. And excluding food and energy, which are known to be volatile, that number for July was 4.2%. So again, that's a significant departure from the 2.4% that was included in the president's budget. So as we look forward to seeing what the Hill is considering for FY24, we really need to unpack, you know, if, if you're keeping the budget, the funding levels a certain level, what are you giving up because of inflation? And I want to make sure that we are not cutting into muscle, that it is really just fat we are trimming, um, should it be found but that we're not eating into what exactly the the American people require of their government. And now if your cost accountants work overtime to figure all of that out, then you have (laughs) to pay them overtime. So it kind of feeds on itself, doesn't it? There is that piece of it. I would note, you know, the unexpected part of what happened this year is, you know, we had that debt limit crisis and we had this Fiscal Responsibility Act of, of 2023 come out. And it really does impact what the Hill is discussing for the FY24 appropriations bills. It really remains to be seen what impact that Fiscal Responsibility Act will have on any of this conversation. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Listen to the Federal Drive on your overtime. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Army's Intelligence Directorate is making open source intelligence, or OSINT, a top priority. In fact, the Army published its first ever OSINT strategy this summer. The goal is to professionalize a workforce that can take advantage of the explosion of publicly available data. 
For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the Army's Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Lieutenant General Laura Potter. You know, as I reflect on the lessons we've learned from Afghanistan, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, and really other problems across the globe, uh, we really live in an environment where the vast majority of information that we get is generated from publicly available information and commercially available information and and our OSINT efforts. So we've made great strides in this area. We decided to put a strategy together and publish that. And we really see this as a discipline that tips and cues other disciplines as sort of an intelligence discipline first resort. And we think it's it's critical to our future success. I'm wondering, General Potter, as you came in to be the G2, what was your view on, you know, OSINT going into that role and, and you know, we're going to talk about the strategy that I think was just published earlier this year. But from your leadership perspective on OSINT, how is your how is your view on it evolved in your time as the G2? You know, what convinced you that this really needs to be one of your your top priorities? You know, I think we're all forged by our experiences. And prior to coming into the G2, I was the commanding general of the Intel Center of Excellence for a year where we do training of all of our men and women. And prior to that, I was the J-2 of United States European Command in the years following the first Russia-Ukraine war. And some of the best analysis in the early days of the first Russia-Ukraine war came from open source intelligence. We had done some pilots on open source intelligence with, with Intelligence and Security Command during that time frame. And so those two positions allowed me to reflect on the value of OSINT and, and allowed me to to see some of our gaps. I think we really have made some great strides in training. So as we look towards the future of codifying which soldiers have actually had this training and where they're going to be assigned across our force structure, we really needed to formalize things. And so I'm very excited about that. We've had a great partnership with the Intelligence Center of Excellence out at Fort Huachuca and Intelligence and Security Command so that they learn some things in the traditional schoolhouse of the Army, and then there are follow-on opportunities after they leave the schoolhouse. And then the other thing is the fact that we do place a very high priority on the intel oversight, the regulations, the laws, the privacy concerns, et cetera, to make sure that our intel analysts know um, how to do this work uh, properly. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're really moving out fast on this. And I mean, more broadly across the intelligence community and across the military, how do you see some of this work kind of coalescing with uh, maybe what the Navy, Air Force are doing, what what other elements of the IC are doing? So you have these these standards for training, so you have these career paths more broadly um, across the, the the intelligence community going forward. Is that is that conversation happening? So that's a great question, particularly because we inherently fight as a joint force, and there is such a close relationship between the services, the COCOMs, and the combat support agencies. I think there's been some great crosstalk over the past year to 18 months in particular across the intel community, so all of the, the key agencies that are operating in this space. And then inside the defense intelligence enterprise, I think Lieutenant General Barrier at DIA and his team the Defense Open Source Center 
have really provided some great leadership in his functional manager role. And so I think that is a very important aspect to moving out with consistency. And, you know, let's just, just to dig into it a little bit more, what do you see as being the, the most important kind of OSINT skills, knowledge that someone has to have? What does what that OSINT, either soldier or civilian of the future, look like from just kind of an expertise perspective? So I think there's two aspects of this. So I think, you know, in the near term, our training focuses on making sure that all of our MOSs have an overview of OSINT so that we baseline the entire Army Intel enterprise. There is also an aspect of this that extends beyond the active component Army to ensure that our analysts in the reserve and the guard who really on a day-to-day basis are part of our holistic approach towards analyzing adversaries. So they need to be in lockstep with us. Um, The other thing I would say is making sure we're educating leaders, both Intel leaders and the consumers of our intelligence, our warfighting leaders on the value of the discipline, but also how carefully it has to be managed and implemented. Interesting. Okay. Well, and you know, I wanted to touch on tooling and technology. I saw INSCOM put out a call for white papers earlier this year, and, and OSINT was right at the top of, of those technology needs. From a technology perspective, what are some of the Army's biggest OSINT requirements, needs? How are you all getting after that, whether it's through a big program of record or otherwise? What's important to think of technology-wise here? So I'm going to throw a couple things out. So I think when you consider the extraordinary volumes of data, both open source data and all of our traditional classified data that our analysts will have at their disposal in a future fight, we need to help them as much as we can with enabling technologies so that they can sort through that data. Whether that is a future AI or machine learning application that does some of the initial triage, if you will, whether that is tools that help us with veracity of the data or somehow categorizing the data. Those are the kind of things that some of our other Intel disciplines have decades and decades of tradecraft and technological enhancements, and we need to make sure we have those in place for OSINT. But just as important is our training base is doing training in constructive, virtual, and synthetic training environments. So when we train a brigade combat team, a division, a corps, a multi-domain task force, we need a training pipeline that will help replicate in the training environment just that volume of open source data. So that's another aspect of our modernization that we're looking hard at. Lieutenant General Laura Potter, the Army's Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. There's much more to the interview. You can hear it in its entirety on Inside the IC today at 2 o'clock here on Federal News Network. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.